2: Visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. I know
3: you'll be alright, even when times get hard, and you feel like you're in the dark. You will see just how beautiful life can
4: be when you soften your heart. You can finally start
5: to live your truthiest life. Welcome back to The Truthiest Life. It's your host, Lisa Haim, and I'm humbled and honored to bring you this conversation with Sylvie Lloyd, ex-member of an organization called Nexium and DOS, which are often referred to as a cult or a sex cult. I'm honored and humbled because Sylvie is one of us. She's a listener of The Truthiest Life, and she's also an online friend of mine for a lot of years. For most of our friendship, I actually didn't know that she had any affiliation to Nexium or DOS. It was only when the documentaries started to come out that Sylvie confided in me that she was part of this and that she wanted to come on The Truthiest Life to share her story. Sylvie has not shared her story with the media. She was not part of these documentaries. She's not somebody that is trying to push anything on anybody. She simply is here because she wants to heal, be healed, and heal other victims who may feel some of the shame that she was left with. This is going to be a two-part episode, so expect one episode this week and one the following. And in the first episode, Sylvie's going to break down how she got involved with Nexium how she got pulled in and in the second part we're going to hear about DOS the sub organization often referred to as the sex cult part of it that she was also a part of. This may be the first time that you're even hearing these words, Nexium or DAS. So, just to orient you, Nexium is an organization that was founded by Keith Ranieri. And Nexium was under this guise of being a self improvement, self development program organization. And they offered classes in things like ESP. ESP stands for Executive Success Programs. And these courses were sold to you as if you wanna better your life, if you wanna get more joy, be more successful, take these courses. And at the time, a lot of successful people were doing these programs. They were endorsed by billionaires. They were endorsed by celebrities. And so when we understand that they didn't have the label cult or we didn't know that Keith was this bad man we could understand maybe how all of us were kind of susceptible to being part of this if we were to learn about it at the time. I at least know that somebody who loves self-development, work, courses, programs, I feel like I easily could have been pulled into these types of programs. It's important to understand that people don't just join cults willingly. There's often something that pulls them in and before they know it, they're part of a cult. And to the outside looking in, it might be really obvious, but from the inside looking out, there's so much mental manipulation and brainwashing that has already happened that you defend it and you protect it because it becomes your community and your knowing and your beliefs. DOS is the subgroup that started long after Nexium. So, a lot of people hear the words Nexium and they just think sex cult and they think that people just joined willingly. Sylvia was a part of both Nexium and DOS, and she's so brave to tell her story. She's part of Nexium for 12 years, 10 years before DOS even came to be, and she was the first witness to testify against Ranieri. Sylvia's now a new mom and truly one of the most special people that I know. This episode is really important, and I hope that you listen with open ears and an open heart as we really understand the psychology of cults, how they begin, and how they affect people long after they fall apart. And just as a little content warning, the story does involve sexual abuse. Thank you all for listening and supporting Sylvie as she shares her story. As a reminder, this is going to be a two-part episode, so this week we'll hear all about Nexium and how Sylvie became a part of it, and next week we'll learn more about DOS. Welcome to The Truthiest Life, Sylvie. I'm so excited to see you get a break from momming with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's true. My first actual break yeah. from momming like this. You have no help, right?
4: Mm -hmm. well I mean I feel like bad saying that but yeah I look after her (laughs) full-time
5: you're doing you're doing the most out there and it's been really fun to mom with you have babies almost exactly the same age and watch you really step into this this new role it's a big one for you and for me but really for you I feel like
4: oh well yeah no completely different and breath of fresh air for sure (laughs)
5: So today's episode is going to be, I think, really interesting for me and the listeners. I know that this is probably scary to talk about for all of our listeners. Sylvie and I have had pre-calls before so that I can, you know, better understand and and create a safe place for Sylvie to speak about these things. Today, we are talking about your experience with Nexium with DOS, with... Um, am I saying those words even right? No, you actually are completely. Okay. <laughs> yeah,
4: well, that's right on.
5: These are um, topics that have been exploited, I feel like, for lack of a better word, in the media. Your mm-hmm. words were, this is a salacious story and you're not a salacious person. no. <laughs>
4: It's not at all. Well, I, that's not how I identify myself (laughs) or see myself. No, right.
5: There's been a lot of opportunities for you to be in the media, for you to tell your story to millions of people. Um, and yet you're coming on this podcast specifically, which, you know, we've got a nice reach, but we're not big media over here. We're not (laughs) kidding. Who am I kidding? But why here? What do you want our audience to take away from this episode? Um, well, I think that the story of Nexium, of
4: DOS and all these different things has been told. Obviously, there's an HBO series. There's an, another series that was on Stars. There's a million different, oh, not a million, but there's a lot of podcasts out there speaking about the Nexium and DOS story. And I think that the thing that's a little bit different from my perspective is that, yeah, I never chose to go public with what happened. Obviously, I'm so glad that the FBI and the government stepped in and took the whole thing down and I'm unbelievably grateful for them. But if I'd have had a choice, I wouldn't have been like, hey, I volunteered to be a witness in the trial and for sure not the first witness. And it was almost as traumatic as everything I went through. So it's very different for me. And for that reason, and as advised by therapists and psychologists at the time, it wasn't a good idea for me to be public. And I 100% didn't want to be. So I think I never had a chance to sort of speak about this on my own terms. Not that I would have planned on doing it, but having gone through the trial, been the witness in a trial, being the first witness in the trial, and feeling like it was an exercise in public humiliation, honestly, it gave me such immense amounts of empathy for anybody that's had to advocate for themselves on the stand and probably the the number of people that say in these kinds of cases or situations that have advocated for themselves and they're not one it's not like they're it's gone the way that they would have wanted and and my story alone for sure didn't do that on the stand there was other witnesses there were many other witnesses and other girls within DOS that spoke on the stand but none of our, me and those other girls have not spoken publicly. And I think it's a different story, a different through line and a different recovery to have been in it, and then also been involved in the trial. So that's a really long winded answer, but I think essentially if this podcast could speak to anybody who has been a victim and then had to also testify and stand up and feel the weight of that and what everything that comes in the aftermath of that, I would love to help them feel not alone in that part of the struggle because that's my experience. And so, yeah, if this could speak to anybody in that way, that's what I would love to do.
5: I think, you know, that's the part that nobody i'm speaking for myself you know when i watched i watched that hbo documentary uh, over a year ago and i purposely didn't want to go back and watch it again before doing this interview i kind of just wanted to move forward with what my memory left with me because like you said you know we we watch these documentaries and then the rest of us get to move on with our lives and we have takeaways but never was my takeaway that the trial the part that's supposed to give you freedom a break to feel good to feel heard to feel like justice is being served, you know, never did I think that that could add to what was already very traumatic with DOS. We heard about, you know, sex trafficking. We heard about branding, like really very traumatic things that you experienced. Never did I think that the trial itself could be, as you said, possibly more traumatic. So I actually think that's a really interesting unexplored area and as well as your goal of who you want to kind of help here. You keep kind of saying, I was the first witness. What did it mean to be the first witness? Does that mean that? Um, yeah, and
0: I,
4: I guess I, I don't think I even realized how, like, how much of a big deal that was to me in speaking here. But I'm sort of, the reason why I think if you knew my personality, I don't identify as a leader in anything. And I'm always like, I don't want that responsibility. I don't want to be a leader. I'm happy being a follower. Although obviously since the whole cult thing, I'm like, I need to rethink that strategy. <laughs> like what are you following is a good thing to to really look into but never want to go first in anything I'm the youngest of four children in my family I'm like I'm so used to going last or like watching everyone else get through something safely and then being like okay now I'll try it like that's kind of more my strategy and I think also given the whole breadth of nexium and the other women in DOS and everything that each individual went through it was shocking to me that they wanted my testimony in the trial anyway and i love moira panza who is the who was the prosecutor i worked with the most like i genuinely just feel like she's one of the most strongest amazing women out there and you can listen to her on other podcasts if people want to hear from her and, and her st- sort of approach to the trial. But um, I wish I could say to her, ask her, like, why? Like, why was my story so relevant to the bigger picture? And why first, too? Because I, I just, I feel like the way that trials work, and I learned a lot about that as things went along, is that they're kind of like making decisions about what's allowed to be included and what's not allowed to be included as they go along. So the the different sides of of the trial, the prosecutors and the defense are kind of presenting things to the judge. Like we want to, like, we should be allowed to talk about this. And then there's like a sidebar and you don't know what the outcome of that's going to be. And you're just like sat on the stand being like, I don't even know what they're arguing about or what's about to happen and come from that. So I felt like as the first person, there was a lot of things still being figured out about what could be even spoken about in general during the whole trial. And so I, I just felt like a little bit of a guinea pig, like in so many ways I would just If I'd have gone last for some reason, I feel like that might have been easier, but maybe it was, I'm sure it was just as hard for the last person as it was for the first person. But I think just in my personality, I was like, what? No, for one, just would never choose to do this. And two, going first is like my nightmare.
3: From a juror's
5: point of view, that first witness is going to be the most memorable. Yeah. Oh,
4: yeah. And and basically, I think you are on the stand for quite a long time because you're giving context to the entire story. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so that meant that I needed to speak on things that were more general to how Nexium worked. And I can see from that perspective why I was a good person for that because of the amount of time I was in the organization and how Keith Raniere, who led the organization, kind of groomed me over so many years. Like I came in at age 18. By the time this whole thing fell apart, I was 32. So that is a long time. I saw a lot of things. I experienced a lot of things. And it's not like I rocked up one day and he was like, hey, why don't we do DOS? Like, come and join me with DOS. And that never happened, just for context. I never knew that Keith was involved from the beginning. Like, I mean, I did obviously find out through it, but that's not how it was ever presented to me. And I think that t- that's kind of been talked about in these HBO series a bit about how DOS was presented to each woman. But essentially, I was like, and they used to use this analogy in Nexium, but they'd talk about a frog in boiling water. Like, you could put a frog in tepid water and raise the temperature and raise the temperature and raise the temperature until it boils itself alive and it would never jump out. And they would actually teach us this, this metaphor. And I think, yeah, that was me and other people, but like things got more weird and more traumatic over time, but you just didn't even (laughs) notice to the point where my friends post ESP are like, oh, wasn't this a red flag or wasn't that a red flag? And I'll be like, Well, no, because by that point, you're so numb to what is normal that, yeah, I mean, that's the way he had structured the whole thing is like doing whatever he wants and setting it up
5: in a way that we would actually agree that it was a good idea. Things that are 100% wrong. Right. So, I mean, there's so much to break down here. And for our listeners that are like, what's Nexium? What's DAS? Just to stay focused on the trial for one second, then we'll kind of move out to how you even got to the, to the stand to begin with. Yeah. yeah. I just want to ask, why was that publicly humiliating?
4: My testimony is public knowledge. Like if you know how to find people's testimonies, you can read it. So I the reason why I don't have a problem sharing it, I don't feel publicly humiliated by sharing it right now. But one of the things in DOS was that we had to send Keith all these naked photos. And so there are literally hundreds and hundreds of photos of my vagina. Like, just my vagina, not my face, nothing. And I'd had no prior warning that this was going to be included in the trial. And actually it was something that Keith's lawyer didn't submit as evidence for the trial. So he'd found a loophole of how he could present this at trial without having given the prosecution any warning without having given the judge warning, which normally you have to say what you're going to use as evidence. But because he was like, this isn't for evidence, this is for identification purposes only. (sighs) He spent, I don't know how long it was, because in my head it was like hours and hours and hours, but it doesn't really matter how long it was. It was many, many photos that were presented to me on a screen in front of me where I had to say, yes, this is my vagina. Yes, I sent it to Keith Raniere. And there's the judge looking at pictures of my vagina to my left. Mm. There's the prosecution in front of me. Keith is looking at these photos again. Like, it's obviously like, I used to not be able to speak about this without crying because it was the most deeply humiliating thing ever to me. It still is. I mean, I've had a very amazing therapist that has sort of put a different spin on it for me. Which is like your vagina is so powerful. It, that it is. Neri like, in an area. <laughs> <laughs> like, the first time she said it, it made me laugh so much. It lifted like a giant weight off my shoulders. She's like, no, your vagina is amazing. Like you've got to celebrate that. But at the time, obviously, and my dad and John are both in the courtroom. You know, it's just like every there's tons of media. There's all these people. It's like this is not. I'm not sure that there would anyone that would be like, "Hey, I would love to have that happen. Let me have a go at that." So it was awful.
5: My jaw has dropped because when asking that question, why was it publicly humiliating? I was expecting you to say just telling your story and the things you had to do would be humiliating. What you're saying, my stomach. It, listen, I agree with your therapist. Your vagina did an incredible job. It put right. I do a hundred percent stand behind that. But that was not public humiliating because you felt it was publicly humiliating. It was public humiliating because it was designed to be publicly humiliating. It was a tactic.
4: (laughs) No, it was. And then he went into his questioning. This was like the start of his questioning. And the questioning went on. I mean, I was on the stand for a day and a half. So that's how long that (sighs) went on. And so, I mean, that's not how long the photo part was, but that's how he started as far as i can remember but obviously that stood out to that that's felt like the start no
5: but that was that's mental manipulation because i mean for anybody all of us listening you know when something like mortifying happens whether like you burp or pass gas in like an area that like you don't want anyone to be you know all of a sudden your body turns on you and your brain turns black when you are humiliated when you are made that nervous It takes at least for me time to regulate, to get back into my rational brain, to speak from a factual place. So that was, I mean, the lawyer himself should be in jail. Yeah, I mean, I
4: have, I I try not to hate people, but I do hatred towards. I don't feel hatred towards him so much, but it just makes me, like I that that must have been a tactic from Keith. That is so Keith. Like Keith is written all over that type of behavior that I'm like of course it makes sense that you did that knowing everything that I know and if you knew me if people knew me you'd know that I'm not an exhibitionist (laughs) in any way so it's like there literally couldn't be anything worse as well for me than something like that and it was humiliating enough to send Keith those photos in the first place but having to re-look at them again and then know that he's looking at them right now. All his lawyers are looking at them. And he had like so many lawyers on his table. The FBI agents that I've worked with are looking at them again. And there was people, the jurors were not allowed to look at the photos. They decided that. And so they weren't showing them to the jurors, but there were a couple of men in the front row that was like, I'm, I'm kind of going to do the thing to you. And I think you call it like a smug, but we're like, <clears throat> you know, like laughing. And so it was just like the whole thing. I was like, whoa. I really want to like die basically is how extreme it felt in that moment. And it's not a situation where you can be like, you know what? I tap out. I don't want to do this anymore. Like I'm done. And there's just so many layers to it because you're, you don't want to purge yourself. You're trying to think like, I have to remember everything as clearly as I can. Like there are so many things that, that feel at stake. It's just
5: like, wow, that was like a big punch in the gut. Like right before we, even get going. And the like you said, you're the first one. So maybe they're also trying to scare away the other witnesses. Yeah. Who the knows? Wit- right. I mean, I'm sure, yeah. you know, there's other witnesses that aren't going to want to step up to that stand after they saw what they just did to you.
4: I think as a witness, you're not allowed to be a, a, in any way privy to what the other witnesses have said. And so I don't think they could have known, but it would for sure put people off being public about supporting
5: you okay. know I d- so let's back up a little bit to kind of give our audience the broader understanding of what esp is what nexium is and what dos are and how the three kind of play together
4: Nexium was like an umbrella organization for a bunch of different organizations underneath it. So I think everyone uses Nexium as the name because it's um, the easiest way to describe how Keith had this organization and all these different trainings within the organization so that he could almost appeal to any kind of person. So there was a women's organization called Jeunesse, and then he'd bring women in through Jeunesse. And then there was a men's organization called Society of Protectors. <laughs> which is hilarious, um, and he'd bring in men through that, and then there was like an acting organization and a different, and then so there's all these different things that sit underneath executive success programs. Was more like the kind of business that's ESP, yeah. And so there was all these different things that sat under Nexium. That's one, and Nexium was like uh, I'd say what it was sold as is like personal growth, bettering yourself becoming the person you've always wanted to be, blah, 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 blah. Right. I if that explains, does that explain it enough? It it's
5: like- so Nexium is the big organization created by Keith Ranieri. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And within this big organization that he created, he's created sub organizations that you could join in to be part of, whether it's a women's exactly. society, men's society, business, which is what ESP was. And I think why a lot of a lot of big businessmen maybe took classes came with ESP through. Yeah. came through. So it got a lot of press that way. And then there was DOS. Maybe we should save DOS for a second.
4: Yeah, because DOS was not like a public organization that you could sign up for. So that was like that was a different thing. So what did you come in under? Just as a backstory, I left I I grew up riding horses. My family had horses before I even remember. I competed in show jumping specifically, which is I don't know if I need to describe what that is, but jumping fences on horses is <laughs> right. the best way that I can describe it. I competed in that from when I was tiny and I was trying to become like an elite show jumping rider. So basically an elite athlete would be the same as in any sport. And you grew up not in the U.S., right? Not in the U.S., in the U.K., I'd say privileged and normal, privileged slash normal childhood. I don't really know how the, whether those two words go together, but I had a good childhood and I was given the freedom to like pursue something that was important to me, which was trying to become an elite show jumping rider. So I left school at 16. I trained with some riders in the UK for a couple of years. Um, So I'd left home as well, stationed with them. And then I kind of, long story short, came to America to train with an American show jumping rider who also happened to be uh, taking classes with ESP and
5: very involved in Nexium, very close to Keith. So what year was this? That was 2005. So I was 18. So 18, you come to the US, you are training somebody who is already affiliated with ESP.
4: Yeah, I'm training with them. I'm not training them, (laughs) just to clarify that. They were rode for the US. So they were like very, they were like elite. They were what I wanted to be, basically. And I felt like this was an amazing opportunity for me to achieve my dreams, essentially. But this person was like heavily entrenched in Nexium. And all the people that worked for her also took the classes. So it was kind of, it was just kind of expected that you take the classes and and the person who I was training with actually paid for them for you to take
5: them. So it was very, it wasn't a difficult decision for me. I was like, yeah, okay, for sure. I'll take them. These were just described as personal development classes. This wasn't personal growth. Yeah, right. This wasn't about, you know, joining a cult or anything like that.
4: No, and honestly it was kind of a foreign thing that made me very curious. I thought it was a very American thing to want to bet to yourself which <laughs> is like kind of makes me laugh now, but I was like, wow, well, I was kind of apprehensive going in just because there were some and that's the sad thing to me. Right on the first few days there were there were some genuinely major red flags. I think I got talked out of my gut feelings right there and then. And it just that just took me through the rest of the time, which sounds nuts. But in those original classes, the first two days, I was so because it was a five day course. And for the first two days, I didn't speak at all because I was so nervous and so weirded out by what was happening. What were
5: those red flags?
4: The way that they talked about Keith Raniere freaked me out because I think in, I hate to speak to for all of English culture, but my experience of English culture is like, you don't really have idols. Like you don't overly idolize someone. You just don't. People are a lot more like self-deprecating in general. Like that's our, that's more my, yeah, my experience of, of growing up in England is like you didn't make idols of, of just normal people. And there was this person that were like, we call him the vanguard is what they had this word for him. And he was like, the most amazing, intelligent man in the world. And like, you didn't even meet him. This was like them talking about this, like ethereal creature. It was so it was just it was very strange to me right from the start that there was kind of this person that's like the greatest in the universe was the way that he was talked about and that he's created, we're so lucky to be taking these classes because he's created all this curriculum and you can become the person that you're going to be. It just sort of freaked me out. And then on top of that, some of the classes themselves were really freaking me out. Like one of the first things that I remember that you were supposed to do was like an excited state and you were supposed to come up with an excited state and act it out to the whole class. And like I said, not an exhibitionist. I was like, Oh, my God. Like For one, I'd never spoken about my feelings in general. I think that is another English culture thing. So I was like, I can't even think of the time I was excited. <laughs> Obviously, I'd been, I'd been excited before, but it's just like it just wasn't in my, my remit to like really even think that way. I just couldn't participate. I was just terrified the whole time. So that was like the first couple of days. And then on the third day, there was this class, and this has been spoken about in the HBO series, because this happened to a lot of people. But on the third day of this five day course, there was a class where they talk about the suppressives, which are like the bad people that when they see something good in the world, they want to squash it. But then there's like these different levels of who a suppressive person could be and the path that takes you down to being a suppressive person. And part of the, the way that they pitched this thing was like, if you feel uncomfortable around Ke- Va- the vanguard, Keith Raniere, like you could be one of those people. And so then I was like, oh my God, like I have to chill. I might be a bad person. Like I might be a suppressive and it really terrified me. Like it's funny now, but as an 18 year old never exposed to any of this, that is the thing that really hooked me. It's like, I'm worried I'm a suppressive and I don't want to be a suppressive. So like I will
5: do anything to try and be a good person like, I really, that was what really hooked me in. You stayed from 18 to 32, which I think, <laughs> you know, is, Crazy. no, it, it's not just the length of time. It's the when, as we've yeah. talked about in our, in our pre-call in in you explaining to me, like, you don't just sign up for a cult because you want to be in a cult. It's the fact that your brain was modeled by these Keith, the vanguards teaching—I won't even call it that—as a him that as a joke by Keith's made-up world. He created a made-up yeah. world and convinced thousands of people that this is right, this is wrong, and restructured their brains in believing this was real. It sounds like—is that accurate? No,
4: a hundred percent. Well, because the other thing that he did is he really um, had a whole class on what he—I co- think it was even called "good and bad" or something like that where he literally redefines good and bad, what's a good thing and what's a bad thing, and leaves like the door wide open (laughs) for basically his own immorality to reign free. Because he changed the definition of those things. And we would take these, I literally took these same classes hundreds and hundreds of times, because that's the way that they would have you do it. They were like, for sure, you have to take it twice, this five-day course. But The more you take it, the better, basically. So we were kind of like channeled into these classes over and over again to the point where I know all of the stories and the metaphors used in the teachings. And like sometimes we'll like say it was a joke, although not so much anymore. But it was like different little stories. Just I know those classes so well, And so, yeah, that's had an effect on my brain. It's had an effect on my thinking. And it takes a lot of undoing to try
5: not to do this kind of automatic thinking that's been (laughs) programmed into my head. This is what kind of confused me when I watched the documentary and hearing your story, too. You know, you being part of something for 12 years and seeing, like you said, you've taken the classes so many times I know that the facility—I don't know if that's the right word—was in upstate New York. Did everybody yeah. live there in upstate New York, or, or did some people just come take a class and then leave? Like, how did that no, work? So
4: then, by the end of next year, they had sent—they called them centers. They had the center in upstate New York. They had one in New York City. They had one in Mexico City, Guatemala, Guadalajara, uh, Monterey, Mexico, Canada, in Vancouver, Miami. Okay. At LA like they were everywhere got it um, by the end and at the beginning but right in that very beginning I think there were only two centers when I was there there was like one in Seattle and one in Albany and yeah people would fly in to take the classes
5: but not everybody who took a class stayed like you did right
4: no I don't even want to try and get into Keith's head but there were certain people that he would really push to like you need to move to Albany and he'd kind of do that with a lot of people, but I, I'm pretty sure it was mostly the younger women looking at it in retrospect. It's <laughs> like, and, and this is why some of it, I almost laugh because I'm like, Oh, I wish I could have seen things differently. Cause it's almost so obvious and sick in the end that it's like, he kind of surrounded himself with women that he wanted in his, under his control, basically but that doesn't mean there weren't also other families or men that moved to next moved there because I think that understanding that and and I'm not the person that has diagnosed him this way, but many other professionals has It's like a sociopathic narcissist or malignant narcissist, I think is the word that's used a lot. I think that everybody had a purpose that he had around him and you might not know what that purpose was or what, how you fit into the puzzle, but everyone was like a tool to his game and what he wanted. Um, so yeah, there was kind of a mix of people up there, but there were certain people that he pushed really hard to, to try and get them to move to Albany and was successful with some and not with others.
5: Right. So after those, those red flags, you were really uncomfortable the first few days. What influences did you have around you that said, I'm going to keep going with this, even though it feels wrong?
4: Well, the person that, that I came in under, I was like a hundred percent deferential to her as an authority. I would describe it as in love with Keith and still is in my perspective, would do, like still hundred percent supports him, would do anything for him. And so have, you know, the person that you kind of also want to impress because I was working for her and training under her and I wanted to get opportunities. I wanted to be considered, like I wanted to do a good job. I always wanted to do a good job. That's like a huge drive for me. It was just kind of like, it. I wouldn't hurt. It felt like, I'm sorry, I'm just not even being super clear, but maybe that gives a sense of what was going on with me at the time because, She's paying for these classes. I've moved my life to America to train with her. This is two days in. I it did, I couldn't feel like I could just quit that class without there being major repercussions that was meant saying goodbye to my dreams in my head. So there was that huge pressure. And then, yeah, I felt like I didn't have anything else. I felt like I didn't have another option at that time and and going back to England after having only been there for a couple of weeks felt like a failure to me. Like I wouldn't have, you know, made it if you know what I mean. And then I did multiple things that took me in more and more deep. Like we flew my horse out from the UK to the U S to train with her and things like that, where it's like another layer. That's another hook that like, you know, I'm not going to back out at that point. My horse is here. (laughs) My life is now suddenly here It kind of felt like a runaway train, honestly. And then before too long, there there were multiple times where I actually tried to break free from living in America. And I'd always end up coming back because of things that Keith would say to me and things that this person would say to me. And there was this line of accusation that was used with me. And I think everybody had a different one from from the people, from the leaders of Nexium of like why they needed to stay in Nexium or why they needed to be in Albany. And for me, Keith would describe me as that I was just a robot to my indoctrination. This was a word that he used a lot. And that at one point, he even told me that if I ever had children, they wouldn't love me because I was so cold. Things like that where... And so then the answer to not being that way was to take more courses, was to stay in next year, was to move to Albany. Like he was the cure to all of my ailments was how he described it. And then that was then supported by the person who I saw as the biggest authority in my life for the majority of those years. Like I was 100% felt like she had all the answers and that she would even say things like, I know you better than you do. And that I believed that. I did believe that I didn't know myself. And I I don't think I did, just to be honest, because I was so disconnected and disassociated, but it's not that I don't know myself. I think I was just traumatized and I, I didn't even see it at the time.
5: I mean, you were, you are 18, you know, living in another country <laughs> who, who knows themselves at 18, first of all, you know, and if somebody says, I know you better than you know you, I think if anybody said that to me at 18, I would believe that too, especially when you've left so much behind, you are trying still to pursue your career. And it it all falls in line with believing that these people have the answers. It's all, like I said to you in our pre-call, I feel like it could have been me. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, well, I do feel like Yeah, it could have been a lot of people and I'm really glad it wasn't.
5: But yeah, I
4: think if people can step into that kind of thinking of, of that age, or maybe if they even were that age, they would kind of get it. Well, I feel like, I mean, I could get it with someone else telling me the story. At different times, I also went back to live in the UK for like a year at a time or whatever, but I'd always be, I was still taking classes all the time. I still had an ESP coach. I was still... I I was supposed to check in with Keith and the other person every day. So every single day by email and phone, I would check in with them wherever I was in the world and may not
5: have been in Albany for every second, but I was never not in Albany in my head. (laughs) Right. So when you took that first ESP class, you said the teacher described the Vanguard and Keith and you know, this mystical creature that knew everything about every, you know, he was so smart and amazing. At what point did you actually meet him?
4: I think I met him pretty soon. So it was maybe like a week later and I did actually have to tell this story on the stand. And I think it was kind of funny because he had this like weird thing where he liked to play volleyball in the middle of the night. So he would rent (laughs) out a gym. (laughs) I know there's been some funny memes done on it. I think there was even an SNL skit done of him as in his volleyball outfit. I just think he just liked to do weird things and make people do them for him. So we'd all have to, well, he would, he wanted people to come and watch him play volleyball with a group of other people, but it would be like from midnight to like five in the morning or something like that. And so (laughs) I was encouraged greatly to come to volleyball to meet with Keith. Like this is like a a grand honor type thing. So I remember showing up. It was like ABC Fitness in Albany. I think that's what it was called at like two in the morning. And there's this like tiny man with a like 70s sweatband on and a ponytail. And he's like tiny Mm -hmm and sweaty and creepy and and that was my first experience of him and he would just come up and kiss you on the lips and I thought uh, again like it just even in English culture that's like whoa like holy smokes that's not invited but then that
5: was the standard that was set it's so gross they just can't even it makes me want to be thinking about it it's not uh, UK culture and it's also not American culture I put so many things down to this must be an American thing, which now I'm
4: like, and I kind of laugh at, but I'm, I sometimes I think I still get it wrong where I'm like, maybe this is an American thing about... And it probably really was a key thing, not an American
5: thing. <laughs> no, I mean, it just goes to show that your reality is what you're surrounded by, by even oh, a short okay. amount of time. You know, if you are surrounded, if, if you walk into that 2 a.m. volleyball thing and everybody that you know is, is doing this 2 a.m. volleyball, you go there and he's kissing someone else on the lips when they see them. And then you see him and he kisses you. You're just you know, you, you, I don't, you go along with it. Yeah. You don't, you don't question it because that you've seen that this is the normal in this uh, pseudo reality that's been manufactured by him himself. So he kisses you on the lips immediately.
4: Yeah. And, and all the women, like you say, and just there were so many things about that experience that were weird to me. And it's not that they didn't continue to be weird to me all along, because I mean, he lived in a house with two other women <laughs> And I was always like, would, it was like I would try and reframe things in my mind or like make them more palatable to me, where I was like, oh, one of them's his friend, and the other one's like, you know, I just wouldn't ask any questions. I just didn't want to think about things as being weird. And he'd see him walking around the neighborhood with like all these women and always surrounding himself with all these women all the time. And I'd always think, well, He's helping them. Or like you'd try and think that, but really underneath I'd be like, that's creepy, that's creepy. This is creepy. I find him creepy. Like, but like but that voice I think became so quiet. It wasn't that it was never there, but I was like, there's no one that I can say this to that's going to agree with me. And I think hundreds of people felt the same way in Nexium because yeah, it, no one would speak like blasphemy of Keith. That was just not the way it was, So I think loads of us were probably like, wow, this is really weird and, and didn't say anything about it.
5: And there were a lot of smart people that would go to ESP classes. You know, if you Google Nexium and ESP, you hear a lot of big business people were taking the classes there. There's a lot of celebrities, female celebrities associated with Nexium. Like you knew a lot of celebrities just being part of it, I assume, right? Yeah, I did. And I think that, yeah, all of that it normalized things. And also because like
4: the party line was always that Keith was making people more successful and he actually wasn't, he was attracting successful people. And then they were becoming less successful through staying in next year. Like that's the reality of it, looking back on it, but that's his spin on it. And you kind of felt like that. It was a very like idealistic environment. People would be going after their goals and Nobody was achieving them, And I think that's the thing that we were all blind to, which is nuts in retrospect. But it was kind of like you had this huge community of friends around you that was like a really strange eclectic mix looking back on it because it was people from all different random walks of life. But at least you were kind of felt like you had friends and you were surrounded by people. And I think that was another huge hook. And that was kind of addressed a lot in the HBO series, I think, because that is probably what kept a lot of people Is like, well, all my friends are even in this and and I'm part of something that's bigger than me. And yeah, so it had that aspect to it too, that kind of just would, they would get all these testimonials from the successful people and have them on video being like, you know, Keith Ranieri has changed my life and blah, 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 blah. And I, I've i never been in one of those videos. Hilarious, like obviously. <laughs> I think if you really looked at it, Keith Reneary made my life so much worse and there's nothing that I could really show for that. But yeah, I was never in one of those testimonial videos, which I do find quite funny considering the amount of time that I was there. Not that I would have wanted to be, but I'm just saying like- The people that have
5: been around for a really long time were not often the people that were the face of things. Ah, I understand. Right. Because you're really the most enamored when you're not in so deep. When you're in so deep, you know a little bit too much.
3: Exactly.
4: Yeah, and the the reality of what Nexium does to you has started to kick in, and and that's not as impressive as someone who's like, I'm a famous actress, and yeah, maybe they they've only been there a year or or even less, and they're saying like, this has really done so much for me. Their life still looks very appealing to a lot of people in the public, and they don't know what's on the other side of that.
5: Well, Sylvie is clearly the bravest person that I know, and I hope that your eyes and ears are a little bit more open, and most importantly, your heart is a little bit more open after hearing this part of her story. As a reminder, next week, we're going to hear the rest of this episode, where we learn how she got affiliated with DOS, the sex cult part of Nexium, and how it also fell apart. Here's a little clip so you can be prepared for what's coming next. Nobody can know
4: about this. Apparently, nobody can know about this. This is a completely secret project and all my collateral, which by that point, she'd already collected a couple of naked photos of me. But again, she was like, they're just going in a safe. I'm not even going to look at them. And I was like, okay, super weird. But they were going to Keith, like, and I just didn't know that at the time. Yeah. And then basically, one of the first things that I was tasked to do was, I need you to seduce Keith, was what she said. And I was like, seduce Keith? Like, what? Like, and I was like, why? Like, does he know? You know, it was
5: so far out there for me. I'll see you next week back here on
0: The Truthiest Life. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day?